I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Real quick, just wanted to give you all a huge thank you for listening and supporting the show. We just launched about two weeks ago, and the response has been even better than we had hoped. You all are amazing, and I'm so excited to keep bringing you these episodes every couple weeks. And just to give you a little teaser of what we're planning, in addition to these interviews, we're also going to start producing episodes where we actually bring you along with us and take you on a little audio adventure out into the field, into the wildlife clinics, and into the labs, so you can actually get a first-hand taste of what it's like working in the realm of wildlife health. It's going to be really fun and a little outside the box compared to your typical podcast, so stay tuned. And speaking of outside the box, you're going to absolutely love my guest today, Dr. Andrea Bogomolny. Andrea is a community scientist, as well as many other ists. She's a naturalist, an artist, a biologist, and a conservationist with a passion for the ocean. Her interests have focused on the links between ocean, marine mammal, and human health. As an undergrad at UC Davis, she actually finished with two degrees, one in wildlife, fisheries, and conservation biology, and another in studio art. From there, she went on to get her master's degree in marine biology from Boston University, and then her doctorate from the University of Connecticut. She then spent several years as a postdoctoral fellow and a guest investigator at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Over the last six years, she's taught marine mammal science at Bridgewater State University, Cape Cod, the Marine Studies Consortium, Massachusetts Maritime Academy, and the Shoals Marine Lab, where she actually started a SEAL research program over a decade ago. She also currently chairs the Northwest Atlantic SEAL Research Consortium. Andrea drops some serious marine health knowledge on us today. We talk a lot about our friends the pinnipeds. The word pinniped basically translates to fin feet, and so the pinnipeds include seals, sea lions, and walruses. And yes, while they look like adorable puppies of the ocean, they are also important sentinel species for marine and human health. And Andrea explains exactly what that means. She also explains to us how researchers actually get their hands on seals in the wild to study them and collect samples like blood, for example. And what exactly a seal sack is and how is that involved? And I finally get an answer to a nagging question of mine. Can rotting whale carcasses actually explode if left on a hot beach? Is that a fact or myth? I loved everything about my conversation with Andrea, and I didn't want it to end. I wish I could sort of just attach myself to her professionally and never let go, like one of those little remora suckerfish on the side of a shark, because she's the type of person that elevates everyone around her and everyone she works with. So let's get to it. Here's Dr. Andrea Bogomoni, a.k.a. Dr. Dre. So you may have forgotten about this, but I think maybe the last time we saw each other in person, we spent a beautiful afternoon together freezer diving for seabird carcasses <laughs> when you were at That's Woods right. Hole. Um, <laughs> and then I ended up driving said carcasses in the back of my Jeep um, four hours back up to Maine. Um, but yeah, I think that was the, maybe the last time I saw you in person. <laughs> That sounds about right, actually. Yeah. (laughs) 
but it's it's so good to see you i i wish we could have done this in person especially given that we're both based in massachusetts right now but with the whole covid thing um we're doing this via zoom but it's still it's good to at least see your face it's so great to see you too so you've been busy since i last saw you and there are so many things i would love to talk to you about um, based on all the work you've done over the years and I will confess that in preparation for this interview, I actually downloaded your CV that was posted <laughs> on your website. And I have to say, it's a little intimidating. Intimidating? No. You are intimidating. <laughs> it's like 14 pages of all the badass things you've done. Seriously, guys, you can go see this for yourself on her website, andreabogomoni.com. I've included the link in the show notes. On her site, you can learn more about all the awesome research and community science projects she's been involved in. You can also see some examples of her artwork, including a character illustration of what appears to be a seal wearing a tiny snake as a hat. You can also see pictures of her two doggos, Hunter and Gypsy. Let's talk about seal health and also seals as sentinels of human health and then the whole concept of one health. Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess the best way to start with that is is why seals <laughs> or why in the first place that enters conversation. Um, when I started my my life, <laughs> my academic life post undergrad, um, I moved from San Francisco to the East Coast to Woods Hole, thinking that I would be out here for oh, maybe a couple months, maybe a year. And um, I was always interested in, in toxicology and health, but never marine mammals. It wasn't something I, I worked with or was really all too familiar with. And I just kind of, by way of, of learning about where I was in this new place in New England, realized there wasn't a lot done with seals in this region. And it kind of surprised me coming from California, from the West Coast, where you know they were rebounding lots of them everywhere, elephant seals, sea lions. And one of the things that popped up was that um, where where I am in Massachusetts, close by in New Bedford, is a super fun site um, for PCBs. Okay, if you're like, huh, super what? Let me jump in and clarify real quick. A super fun site is basically a location designated by the EPA for being heavily polluted by hazardous and toxic contaminants. Usually these sites require long-term cleanup, usually over several years. So the super fun site Andrea just mentioned in New Bedford, Massachusetts, was a site that was highly contaminated with toxic compounds called PCBs, short for polychlorinated biphenyls. So where did those PCBs come from? At least two manufacturers in the area used those PCBs to produce electric devices back in the 1940s and then all the way through to the late 1970s. And in doing so, they ended up discharging industrial waste, which contained those nasty PCBs, directly into the harbor. And even though the use of PCBs was banned in 1979, unfortunately, the damage had already been done. And I learned all about what that was and, you know, kind of made the connection of, you know, seals are eating fish that come out of this area. How come nobody's looked at contaminants in this area and and how they might be affecting seals? We know that it's a human health problem. Why have we not looked at it in these, you know, top trophic level animals? So that's where the story really began is, well, that was why seals. So I had to figure out, you know, what that connection was to start with, knowing that there is a unique relationship between 
animals, environment, and human health. And so that's the one health sort of idea, um, building from it sort of this concept of, well, we should pay attention and understanding that um, what happens to these animals happens to us as well and the environment that we're in. So that's where that idea of, of One Health sort of integrated into my life or where that definition became a reality and really trying to get to the, the so what. So we knew that there were contaminants, we knew that there were seals, and then it was the so what, that's the One Health part and showing that, wow, it's actually impacting these animals. And then taking it one more step and asking, well, I don't know how many PCBs I have in me, but it must be similar because I eat a lot of fish. <laughs> I live in this area. Um, can it tell us a story about ocean health and human health as well? So that to me is that relationship of one health. Um, and so that's where I started looking at seals and understanding that yes, they, they are affected and have elevated um, enzyme levels that I was looking at from the effects of these contaminants and trying to take it a couple steps further. So that's where it's all started was almost 20 years ago with that one question of why haven't we looked at contaminants in seals? So by studying levels of those toxins, such as PCBs in the seals, that can tell us something about perhaps what we as people might also be exposed to. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Are there any things about seal um, biology or natural history that might make them particularly good sentinels when we're talking about comparing them for human health? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a really good question. And it's part of, I think, the what makes them intriguing to me and also part of the conflict, which happens with a lot of these animals, with our, with our pinnipeds, with our seals, is that they are um, in our inner site. So they, they require land and they require sea. So they pup either on ice or on land and here it's land. Um, and so we see them coastally in coastal environments on our, on our back doorstep really here. Um, and then they go out and forage, you know, for hundreds of miles out to sea. But unlike other marine mammals, say, that live in our ocean, like whales and dolphins and porpoise, they come to shore. So they're at at our existence, they're in our sight. And that's really something unique about them, which is intriguing, acts as a sentinel for us in terms of where they live and humans themselves so coastally. Um, it also makes them a problem to a lot of people as well. How are you actually studying that? Are you studying samples from dead seals that are collected at necropsy? Or are you taking blood samples? What kind of walk us through, how does one go about determining toxin levels in a seal. <laughs> yeah, so so back in the day 20 years ago uh, when I started this and this is part of the story in my in my long-winded story. Um I needed samples and I needed liver samples specifically to understand what was happening um, to the seals themselves with these contaminants. So I needed a blubber sample. That's where a lot of these contaminants are stored is in the fat of these, these animals. Um, and a liver sample, that's where the enzyme is for what breaks down these contaminants. And so I had to figure out, well, how am I going to get dead seals? And how am I going to do this? Um, so I reached out to a lot of different people who were extremely helpful. Um, I reached out to people at the Northeast Fisheries Science Center in Woods Hole, work with bycatch of seals. Quick interjection. The term bycatch refers to the incidental capture of a non-target species in a commercial fishing net. Marine animals, including dolphins, whales, seals, sea turtles, and seabirds, can all become unintentionally caught in fishing nets. And sometimes it's a significant cause of mortality for some species. 
I reached out at the time to the Cape Cod Stranding Network, which was the, the marine mammal stranding organization for our region. Um, I basically reached out to anybody I could think of who might have a dead seal. And it really uh, got me thinking about, wow, there's a lot of people interested and there's a lot of people who are looking to find out more and don't have um, the resources, the time or the money really to answer these questions. So people were very, very helpful in, in connecting me to these animals. And at the time, 20 years ago, it was actually kind of difficult. Um, my sample set wasn't very large um, getting dead seals. And then the other story of where these samples came from are from live seals, so from pups. So we would get biopsy samples from live pups, so capture pups um, on Muskegon Island, take a little biopsy sample from their flipper, and that was one way we could tell the story of what was happening in their system. Um, and so we used those as well. So between live pups that we could get our hands on, um, dead seals that were either stranded or bycaught, I was able to take these small, these small samples and actually analyze the contaminants in their system as well as what their system was doing with these contaminants. So you mentioned part of that was taking biopsies from live seals that you captured. So of course, now I have to ask, how do you actually capture a seal <laughs> in field work? Yeah, so my first experience, and I, um, again, I'm so grateful for all the people who've helped me along the way. This isn't anything just to say that I do. This is a we team effort <laughs> to do this work. But to capture a pup is a lot easier than adults. Um, and you actually have a pup capture bag that you use to stealthily ninja style, sneak up on seals, put this bag over them, scoop them up. And then- So, so like the pups are, are on the beach. They're on the beach. And Where- where are where's mom <laughs> during all of this? <laughs> so we would catch pups and still do when they were um, weaned. So mom mom hopefully wasn't nearby too close. You know she was probably done um, giving milk to her pup or, or having a pup that was already weaned. But so they're just kind of minding their own business on these little islands, Muskeget and Monomoy are the two near us where seal pups thrive. Um, and as they're minding their own business, you you carefully and stealthily sneak up on them so you can put them in these pup bags, um, scoop them up, and then um, carefully, because they have big teeth and don't want to be captured, restrain them. So it looks like you're sitting on them, but you're not really sitting on them. You're just kind of restraining them a little bit. Um, and then the sample that I take, just to you know, clarify too, isn't an internal sample, it's external. It's just a piece of the flipper. Their hind flippers have webbing in between their hind flippers. And that webbing, you can take and do all kinds of analysis with that sample. So we don't do anything too crazy invasive. We might take a blood sample, take a poop sample, and take a skin sample and hair sample. Nothing, nothing internal to these live guys. And where do you usually take the blood samples from? I'm super curious. Um, so sort of like intervertebral or if it's really cold, a flipper stick it also works too. Um, flipper sticks tend to actually work really well unless they're really cold. Um, but most of the times they're not happy that you've captured them. And so their blood's flowing pretty Yeah, well. blood pressure is pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's not something I've ever, I've ever tried myself. So come out and catch some seals <laughs> oh yeah I would love to oh my gosh yeah I'm there next time let's do this <laughs> so you're you're restraining them and I would imagine that a restraining a seal is basically like trying to restrain a wet slippery torpedo of blubber and muscle so, <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> but again these are you said these are weanlings so they're compared to the size of an adult what what size are we talking about 
so with the gray seals, they're definitely a lot smaller. And that's what, what I was studying was gray seals primarily. Um, they're, uh, I think, like 50 kgs max. And an adult, I mean, adult is way much bigger than that. You know, I think, um, what would kigs be? It's about 600, 800 pounds for an adult. Um, and we've done adult captures only once on gray seals in the, in the wild. So not stranded, not entangled, but just wild, healthy um, <laughs> adult seals. We did it once in 2013 here in the U.S. in the, in the Northeast. And that is like a 20 person operation um, where they're actually sedated um, in order to capture them quick edit here while the dogs make their cameo appearance. I did see on your um, resume that from about 2003 to 2005, you were actually the, the necropsy coordinator for the Cape Cod Stranding Network, where you were basically, and correct me if any of this is wrong, but coordinating marine mammal necropsies, which included both small and large cetaceans, seals, and porpoises. And so that kind of brings me to a question that I've always wanted to ask you, which is, what is it actually like to do a necropsy on something like a whale? And is that, is that something that you did as part of that work? Yep, many a whale. <laughs> so, so how does that work? So all of my personal necropsy experience is on much smaller things like, you know, birds mainly and, and you know, maybe a moose or two here, here and there, but definitely nothing like a whale. So how does that actually work? Is it a team where you kind of, you break up and it's like a team effort? It's like, hey, you take respiratory system, go, you know, you take <laughs> liver, go. What is, what is it actually like? I, I am, um, this might sound strange, but I love doing whale necropsies. And part of that is because it is a team effort. And I think, I know this sounds um, a little strange, but they're fun. <laughs> I know that just sounds like probably like the worst thing to say, but there's something very, um, I, you know, trying to understand why an animal died is something that uh, can solve problems and help the living, I always say. So there's always an answer. It's always different. And whale necropsies are unique in that sense where you are working as a team. I mean, when, when we do a bird, it's a bird. It's like right in front of you, unless it's like an ostrich maybe, right? But when you're looking at a whale, you use so many different expertises that people have in order to get it done. So the teams are usually broken up as um, a sampling team. <laughs> There's the hookers where they, the people get very confused, but the hookers are the people that are taking the blubber off. So we look at a whale and I was, I was trained to do this from somebody who um, has been such a great mentor who actually worked on a whaling ship in Iceland and taught us how to take apart a whale like you would if you were whaling. So um, we use heavy machinery to slowly take the layers off. So starting with the blubber layer and you have heavy machinery, you need somebody coordinating that part. So um, I would say I'm like every five-year-old boy's best friend because I can talk about front end loaders and cherry pickers and you know all the different trucks that are out there. Um, but you need to know that knowledge. It's really important in order to um, tell the people working with the heavy machinery what to do. And they are like artists, the way that they can move the, the basket in the front to just take off pieces for you or hold on to chain and be secure so you're not injured in the process. Um, so there's that part. And then when you're looking at a system, you usually have a couple of people who've done a couple of necropsies. It's not their first rodeo, sort of, so to speak, who can understand um, the general gross pathology, looking for signs of 
always intentionally looking for human interaction, which tends to be one of the primary reasons why we see a lot of dead whales um, on our beaches, in addition to you know normal disease that we see. Um, so we have teams that are, are spread sort of in that area of expertise. And then you have a sampling team just doing the sampling. You have somebody who's just looking for health and safety and making sure everybody's okay. And usually you have somebody that's gonna be you know, answering to media because, you know, nine times out of 10, somebody from media will be there with the big dead whale on a beach. So it's really a team effort, um, a lot different than doing a small like bird in your hand, um, but still the same process and still the same needs, looking at all the samples you need to do, all the histopath and all the contaminants and everything else. Just, we have to always remember to take the same size sample, which is difficult when you do a whale. <laughs> You always want to take a big piece of the lung, but you just leave a little tiny piece. Um, and so that's it. So it's a it's a fun process. It's a team effort and a lot of um, um, laundry after perhaps more so maybe than looking at a bird. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, that's fascinating. And I totally want to come do a whale necropsy with you guys sometime. That sounds like the most crazy and fun thing ever. I definitely miss it. So I haven't been to one in a while, but there's, it's always a blast. Yeah. So, okay. Speaking of blast, <laughs> we got this segue at the risk of making myself sound really dumb. I have to ask this question, which is always, which has been a question I've wanted to ask somebody for a while. So with, with whale carcasses, is it true that when a whale carcass is sitting on the beach and decomposing and they start to become more and more bloated from all the various gas forming bacteria and such. Is it true that they can actually explode like a rancid whale bomb or is that is that just a myth? No, it's true. It is true. <laughs> there is that great video I think from Oregon from back in the day um, where they had, a, I think, explosives actually to explode a whale. Okay, so obviously I had to Google this. And I'm so glad that I did. And coincidentally, the epic failure I'm about to describe happened 50 years ago, almost to the exact day as I record this episode. So let me set the scene. It's the year 1970 in Florence, Oregon, on a warm, sunny day in November. It would have been the perfect day for a walk on the beach, if not for the decaying 45-foot sperm whale carcass that had been festering on shore for the past three days. It got so bad that the state finally enlisted engineers from the highway division to help get rid of it. Their solution? To blow it up using 20 cases of dynamite. What could go wrong? The engineers intended for the eight-ton carcass to be disintegrated into teeny tiny little pieces that would peacefully fall into the ocean or get picked up by scavengers. But instead, when they detonated the whale, huge chunks of flesh and blubber rained down from the sky crushing a car a quarter mile away and completely covering the crowd who had gathered on the beach to watch. Amazingly, there were no injuries. And the whole thing was actually documented on camera by a local news reporter who gave us one of the best storylines I've ever read. Quote, Blast, blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. End quote. And in honor of the 50-year anniversary of this hilarious whale of a fail, the town recently named a riverfront park to memorialize the event. Exploding Whale Memorial Park. Nope, I'm not making this up. 
it can happen. Yeah, the pressure builds up so much that you, it definitely can, especially in places that are very warm and hot and in the sun. Wow. Okay. Confirmed. Fact. <laughs> <laughs> Bloated whale carcasses can explode. Confirmed. <laughs> so it's confirmed. So glad I got that off my chest. I've been wanting to ask you that for so long. All right. So circling back to kind of um, reeling this conversation into maybe something a little bit more serious. <laughs> I did also see that you this year were co-author on a publication that just came out in the Journal of Zoo and Wildlife Medicine. The article is titled Serum Biochemical and Hematologic Reference Intervals for Weanling Northwest Atlantic Gray Seals. Full citation and link to the article in the show notes. For so many of the species that we work with, we don't actually know what's normal in terms of blood work. And so to kind of put that into context for maybe some of our non-veterinary listeners, it's like when you go to the doctor or you take your dog or or cat to the vet and they do blood work, we know what's normal because we've, you know, been able to calculate those very specific reference ranges. So, you know, if we look at liver or kidney values in that blood work, we know what the normal range is. So if you're, if you're falling outside that range, that could be a sign that, you know, something's wrong. And, but I think what maybe folks that aren't involved in the the wildlife health realm may not understand is that for so many of the species that we're working with and we're trying to assess health or we're trying to assess what is the impact of something like a contaminant like PCBs, we just don't really have that baseline data to know what's normal. Well, I'll say it's not not my work and it's everything else. Everything is done in such a team. As you can tell, this is like a theme. I think in my my life, um, but it actually is a really cool story about how that work came to be, and um, the work looking at gray seal pups primarily has been forged by Wendy Perrier and John Runs Dutler, who are at Tufts now, and who started doing um, uh, pup captures, or really making it a bigger entity, working at um, pulling people together to see what we could learn about influenza of all things. So that's actually where this came about. And we worked, um, Wendy and I and a lot of people together to maximize what we could learn and how we could do these pop captures. So starting there, as you can tell, I will go back to the kumbaya, everybody working together um, and working with the Northwest Atlantic Seal Research Consortium, um, which is really near and dear to my heart, really finding people to work together to try and get um, answers solved basically about seal health um, and anything really about seals and primarily baselines. As you said, baselines are so important. So all of us working together um, over the years, and this is Wendy's work and John's work, um, really were able to capture, I don't even know how many hundreds of seals, maybe thousand now over the last eight years or so. And with that came an opportunity working with Mystic Aquarium too, to to get these blood values done, to answer that baseline, what is normal? So as um, an example to that about how important it is, is most of the time and where my training came from at first was really with marine mammal stranding networks. And when you work with a stranded seal, you're happy if the seal is like bouncing on its own and, you know, can move and eat on its own. Most of the time, those animals are not in the best of shape. So what our normal was for a long time, or my normal was, had nothing to do with what really was normal in the wild. So I was very glad when I started, I could do these pup captures out in Monomoy and Muskegon. 
early on to know what a healthy seal look like. Because to me, you know, a, a pup with three inches of fat or blubber was normal. You never see that with a stranded animal. And so if you were only working with stranded animals, you would think that something with one inch of blubber might be normal when in fact it is not. <laughs> so hence this ability to get baseline data from weanling healthy pups is such a big deal because we have something now to base um, what that, that range is for what we quote unquote say is normal. Um, and the other part of that is looking at nutritional condition, which is really important as well, which goes hand in hand with the blood values and what normal is, where we would get pups that, you know, when you take a sample, you have to bring needles to get the blood um, and we go, you know, anyways, so we have needles that are one to three inches in, in length. And when I first started, this was a funny story. Um, one of those, oh, field work, it's field work, you learn your lessons. Um, since my experience had been with stranded animals, I asked um, friends of mine, I couldn't go out in the field, and I said, I'm going to send someone else out. What size needles should I bring with me for these pups? And they're like, just bring one, one and a half, you'll be fine. And they were too small, they were too short because these pups were so healthy and they were animals that my friends and colleagues had never experienced. Oh, because they were used to they were used to dealing with all the stranded pups that had much less fat. Yeah. Right. So hence again why these baselines are so important of healthy individuals. So these values, blood values, come from animals with three inches of blubber <laughs> and what normal should be. And that's something that we can use in the field of strandings or rehab or um, just even if there's an unusual mortality event or something happens so we can judge how far from that normal they are so that's the significance of why it's so important to bring everybody together to get these you know maximize the samples you take and that really to me is the beauty of that little study is is we have that now a little bit of it so we're shifting now from talking about assessing the health of individual animals to assessing the health of entire ecosystems. And this is something Andrea has a particular interest in, in answering the question, how do you assess ecosystem health? What indicators should we be looking at? So this concept of how to manage ecosystems for the betterment of the health of the ecosystem is really what I'm interested in. And what does that mean? So seals, <laughs> going back to seals, fall into it for me, one, as we talked about, that they're sentinels for ocean health and how the ocean itself is doing. And that includes fisheries. And that's um, a part of the work that I've really become involved with and very passionate about is, and I keep talking about these conflict issues. They come to shore and they're near the beach. And this is where that issue comes in, is that is part of our um, existence, is living and coexisting with these species that are now rebounding in our oceans. And there's a lot of conflict that comes about with the limited resources we have in our worlds. And a perception, say, that seals or pinnipeds are taking more from that environment than humans might be. And this is an issue that comes with fisheries. So that's part of it. Um, and one of the messages or reasons, I should say, that seals are so important in that is that they really do tell us the state of the ecosystem and how it's doing. And there's this need to find indicators of ocean health in ecosystem-based management. And there's a need to try and assess when we know we're past this tipping point, if we're doing okay or not. And 
coming from a world going back 20 years where we look at stranding data, we look at baseline health, we have indications of what a quote unquote healthy individual might be. And there have been times in our short existence where pinnipeds have really been or seals have been the indicator that something is off in the ecosystem. Um, one of my, my favorite examples in recent history is um, on the West Coast, there was the Pacific blob that happened in this area of warm water and thousands of dead sea lions were found on the beach between 2013 and 15 and it was this this you know bell ringing as loud as could be that there's something happening there's something going on and really trying to get a picture of what was happening it wasn't just happening to seals it was happening to the ocean to warming waters less nutrients less fish and to me that's the signal out east that that is so important to look for what are these seals telling us about the fitness and health of the fish of the fisheries of the ocean and as we go in a system, as I was saying, in the Gulf of Maine, that's warming so fast and things are changing. Looking at seal health, knowing that we have a baseline, can give us an indicator if something goes wrong. And we really have to start paying attention more to understanding what those baseline normals are so that if we do have something that happens like the Pacific blob, we will know in instantly in that sense. Um, hopefully not thousands of seal seals dying, but we can look for fitness, we can look for nutritional condition, we can look at blubber thickness, for example. And the same thing goes for looking at fish. So what is their fatness or nutritional indice? And that's something I'm really interested in is going across the board to see where we can find these shifts and which species might be best for telling us what the, what's happening in the state of the ocean. So clearly, Andrea has done a lot of amazing work in her career, but it hasn't always been easy and she's faced more than a couple challenges along the way. Oh, so many things. I mean, I think about um, some of the challenges I faced when I started doing my master's 20 years ago. I was told I was too enthusiastic. I would never get a job um, because I, I, I wanted to know too much and I just needed to, to, to focus and therefore I would never be successful. Um, and I think about how impactful that is that I remember that, like somebody who had that position. And now I see it, you know, all these years later at a position of power um, saying these things. And it really is something I always say, God, if I only could tell my 22-year-old self these things, right? Where there is this a power dynamic in, in academia going through getting degrees that is a challenge and is something that I hope changes. I've seen a lot of changes already happening in the marine mammal field. There's been almost an upheaval of um, really challenging the boundaries of access and equity in how we do the work because a lot of the marine mammal work that we do is not paid and how fair or unjust that is that it, it um, doesn't even the playing field at all. And so there is this power hierarchy that does exist in the marine mammal field that I'm, I'm seeing the positives now that people are trying to crack through that. Um, but there is still a lot of this um, old school if you know, that's the way I had to do it. So therefore you do too. And I'm seeing that shift and change, but that's definitely something I had to go through. Most of my colleagues did as well, where it really um, emphasizes that power dynamic and doesn't increase or elevate what needs to be elevated. And that's the creativity, the voices that are quiet, the crazy ideas that, you know, the crazy ideas are the best in this field where you get somebody to, to mentor you. And I'm so lucky to have good mentors who are willing to listen to the crazy ideas. I was taught and one of my best mentors said, you know, the best thing you could ever do to get things done is work with people and raise up their ideas. And if they have a good idea, 
it's their idea. Just lift up the voice. Ego is not important. Just let's get work done. Um, so that's always been so super important. Um, and to the flip side of that is those that are willing to, to step on the young voices to get higher. And so that happens a lot, I think, in academia. So all those different challenges, I think, um, in some ways, maybe made what I needed to do a little bit more certain. <laughs> I'm a little stubborn. <laughs> And um, I really love, love um, helping those that need to be heard be heard. I think it's something that's really important to me. I'm not very loud in general, but I know that there's ways to get people heard, whether that's making a phone call or sending an email or giving somebody a, a, you know, a heads up or attending a talk that they're giving or encouraging a student to give their first ever public you know, presentation. Those are things that make it easier. Yeah, what Andrea is saying here is so true. And I know firsthand how challenging it can be trying to get yourself established in the wildlife profession. She also brought up a really good point in there that I wanted to highlight. All of these programs out there that expect students and interns to work for free when they are just starting in their career can really make it much more difficult for people of less privileged backgrounds to enter this field. I know funding is always tight, but this is something we need to work on together as a profession, especially if we want to increase diversity and inclusion. So if you could leave our listeners with just one quote or an idea that you would like them, if, not, if they remember nothing else from the podcast today, to, to take away with them, what would that be? One thing, I've been thinking about this. Um, I think, can I do two things? Two things, I guess. Okay, so yeah, I'll, I'll allow it, I'll allow it. <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be, again, total nerd, and I'm going to read this quote. This is actually what I was grabbing off my wall, because I have it on my wall, and this was given to me. This was given to me by a fisherman that I work with um, when I was having a hard day trying to figure out, what am I going to do? How am I going to make changes? And I keep this on my wall, because it means a lot to me. It says, I'm only one, but I'm one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can't do. So that's the words that I think mean a lot. But to that, the second part is you're not alone and we don't have to do anything alone. Even if you can do one thing, we have a whole community out there that I think really um, really understands this, this need for one health, the need to work together and not to forget that. We're not alone, especially now <laughs> when we're all in our own boxes. Um, it's, a, it's a community effort to get things done. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.